I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. Playing for Team Human today, Social Innovations Director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, Palak Shah. In many ways, domestic work is this kind of invisible scaffolding underneath our economy that makes it all work. Palak will be enlightening us about America's hidden labor force, the value they create, and how we can support her efforts to give them the voice and dignity they deserve. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. So it's been a crazy week. I'm in the UK doing Team Human Live with Rupert Sheldrake and Pat Cadigan, which we should be posting next week. And if that wasn't madness enough, I also wrote a piece for Medium called The Survival of the Richest about some billionaire preppers who mean to leave us all behind. It's gotten like 300,000 reads at this point and driving everything crazy. But hopefully it's brought some new attention to the podcast. And if that's you, welcome to Team Human. Here we are having a lot more fun than it sounds like the people in that piece were having. And I will be using that piece about the, the billionaire preppers as the basis for my monologue at the live show so you can hear it in plain English next week. Uh, don't forget, we're doing a Team Human Live with Parker Posey in New York City on Thursday, July 19th. Team Human subscribers get in free. Everyone else who just get in somehow. There's more info about that at teamhuman.fm. Meanwhile, uh, back in New York, I saw a billboard on the subway last week. It was a Facebook billboard that had the, the lines on it where fake news is not your friend. Facebook is working hard to detect and reduce the spread of fake news because this is a place for friends, not for the things that get in the way. And the thing that was funniest to me about it was for like 10 years, I've been doing this talk, usually in, in high schools when... They, they invite me out to talk about social media. I've been doing this talk called Facebook is not your friend. That's where I started saying, oh, you're not the customer, you're the product. And I even gave that talk at Facebook itself a couple of years ago. And no, I'm not blaming them for co-opting the Facebook is not your friend meme or reversing it. But this whole idea that technology is supposed to protect us from something is a little bit strange, especially when it's coming from 
the tech company that we actually need protection from. It reminds me of the way AOL worked back in the early 1990s. A lot of people really thought AOL was the internet. It was this kind of safe place you could go so you wouldn't have to go out on the big, scary, wild west internet with hackers and scary people or viruses. So AOL was kind of this nice, safe place. You pop in the CD and you stay in there, in there, what we used to call, you know, the walled garden. But there was this moment in the late 90s when the AOL people plugged into the real net. AOL kind of opened this little spigot so people could go on to Usenet and do gopher searches and things like that. And then all of a sudden they were out on the net and the real kind of... Internet as we know it was sort of born as the public went out there. But now that people are finding this space kind of dangerous again and Russia and bots and algorithms, whatever. So Facebook now wants to become that new safe waiting pool as if we went from AOL to the real net and now we're going to go from the net into the safe Facebook haven. So we'll we'll be safe from the, the big bad algorithms and bots and things when Facebook is actually the breeding ground for the big bad algorithms and bots and things. You know, what it's made me think about is that, yeah, you know, technology can make us more safe, but it can also make things a lot more dangerous. And being able to distinguish between those two is kind of important. I mean, think about if you're really anti-tech, I mean, which I'm not, you can't deny that technology's made us a bit safer. Even campfires helped protect us from the saber-toothed tigers. If it wasn't for fire, we wouldn't have been able to migrate where we did into all these dangerous regions. Nature can be scary or even actually truly dangerous. And each new form of shelter or weapon tends to make things better, at least on one level. I mean, we can argue whether things have gotten better or worse, safer or more dangerous over the last 300,000 years. But we do know, you know, railroads, insecticides, automobiles, antibiotics, we have to acknowledge that they've made us safer at the same time they've had externalities or unintended consequences. Railroads, they turn the American frontier into a land speculation race. Insecticides destroyed the topsoil. Automobiles led to oil wars and the threat of species extinction. Antibiotics created super-resistant strains of bacteria. So technologies, while they can make us safer, sometimes they can also become the things that we need to be protected from. And while digital technologies, they may not be like guns or automobiles, although I guess attack drones are just as lethal, and bitcoins even more polluting, and smartphones are manufactured by slaves, but all that aside, they're sold to us as extensions of our human drive to better protect ourselves through technology, to make things safer, more predictable, even though they're often the most dangerous elements in the entire landscape. So more digital it's equated with more accuracy, with more utility, with more security. I mean, the blockchain, right? It's a better ledger. It's it's safer way of doing accounting. Well, maybe, unless we find out that the creator was, you know, Putin and he's just waiting for us to invest so much money and then crash our entire economy. Do we know? No, we don't know because we don't really know who's got all that original Bitcoin. It's back some legacy somewhere. Or voting. You know, I used to be a big advocate of, of digital voting. It sounds great because it would be more accurate and more easy, and we do it from our phones. But the more computerized it gets, the less we can trust it right now. Not because computers make mistakes, but because the technology through which voting is being done, it's a black box proprietary technology owned by some company that we don't know whether we can trust them or not, particularly when uh, we see them associated much more with one party than with, with another. So despite what Facebook is saying about connecting us and getting all that bad stuff out of the way so we can all just be together, the more digital our social lives get, 
the more is being collected about us and stored and remembered forever. And the less we seem to know what's going on. We don't even know if we're interacting with algorithms or people, with real facts or fake news. The higher fidelity, the higher resolution of the best platforms in the world don't lead to higher reliability. They just make reality less reliable. And it's really just because we don't know how these platforms are programmed. We don't know what they're doing. And that's being hidden from us, just like voting machine IP. The algorithms driving Facebook's content and manipulating its users are kept secret because they are Facebook's most valuable asset. If Facebook was really our friend, they would show us what they're doing. They would tell us what they want from us and how they're getting it. But the whole point of Facebook and Facebook's news feeds is to hide that from us. It's to addict us to algorithmically generated news feeds and extract more time, more data from us in the process. If anything, Facebook's designed to protect us from real news like the New York Times, and keep us immersed in the platform's psychosocial manipulation. Oh, this is the place for friends, not things that get in the way. Well, what we're all learning is that technology can't help but get in the way. That's what it does. That's what it's for. We don't need a digital technology to bring us together, however scary other people might seem right now. And that's because those people, even those ones on the other side who post all that awful stuff on social media, they're not so scary in real life. But the more we use technology to protect ourselves from them, the scarier they're going to get. I'm Molly Wright Steenson, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Esteban Kelly, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Richard D. Bartlett, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Pia Mangini from Open Collective, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Francis Morlapay, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today, Social Innovations Director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, Palak Shah. So let's start with with introducing you and what you do to Team Human uh, listeners. I mean, I understand you're you're Social Innovations Director of National Domestic Workers Alliance, and you run their Fair Care Labs, which is sort of the uh, outgrowth of the alliance itself. So the alliance was started basically before this whole all this net stuff was going on, and it was for domestic workers to have something almost like a union, right? Absolutely. So we founded the National Domestic Workers Alliance in 2007. And the main purpose of the alliance was to unite all of this exciting and wonderful organizing that was happening around the country to bring the uh, visibility uh, to this very invisible workforce, the domestic workers of this country. Domestic workers are nannies and house cleaners, housekeepers. They're people who care for our seniors and grandparents. They're people who care for those with disabilities. And the thing that unites this workforce, Doug, is that they work in the privacy of other people's homes. They work, their home, I mean, their workplace is someone else's home. It's a workforce that we often say makes all other work in the economy possible. If your child care provider is not going to come to work, then you're not going to be able to go to work. And if your parent who is suffering from de- dementia or Alzheimer's um, is having an episode and you don't have anybody uh, to take care of them, then you're not going to work. And so in many ways, domestic work is this kind of invisible scaffolding underneath our economy that makes it all work. So the purpose of NDWA is to bring greater rights, respect, and dignity to this workforce. And you might ask, well, why is such an organization even needed? And the reason is that Well, there's several reasons, right? So the first is structural and legal in nature. Many people are very surprised to find out that when the labor laws and the foundational um, labor laws of this country and the New Deal and uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act and the National Labor Relations Act and all these laws were passed in the 1930s, there were two groups of workers that were explicitly carved out from all labor protections, domestic workers and the farm workers. 
And the reason, right, people ask, well, why, why is it those particular two groups? Well, it's mostly because of the ugly legacy of racism and slavery in this country. In the 1930s, when Congress was seeking to get the votes and pass all of the foundational legislation that made up the New Deal, at the times, in order to get the Southern politicians to vote, they had to agree to carve out African Americans, essentially, from all of these protections. And at that time, in the 30s, agricultural workers and domestic workers were African American. Now, of course, that has changed over time as immigration has opened up, and many times domestic work is now um, a job for new immigrants in this country. But at that time, that's why domestic workers are excluded from everything that we take for granted when you go to work, like minimum wage and overtime and rest breaks and the most basic of protections carved out. Right. And this is for people like who take care of your kids or something. Absolutely. So it's like, okay, you know, you're doing all this work and making millions of dollars on Wall Street, and now they're not even paying minimum wage to the people who are raising their own children. Well, what we've seen is, on the one hand, you can have very harmonious, loving relationships um, that sometimes last over generations between a domestic worker and a family. On the other hand, you have modern, essentially what is modern slavery and human trafficking, um, and then you have everything in between. And really, because each workplace has its own arrangement, each family has its own job. And if you have 100,000 workers working in New York City, for example, you have 100,000 workplaces and 100,000 different jobs. So I think it's hard to say, you know, it's, it's, it is a varied experience for domestic workers. But the structural and legal reality um, and the historical reality is that this workforce was carved out from all protections. The other main influence I think that's really important to pay attention to is our culture, the way that we view this work. And part of that has a lot to do with gender, right? The ideas around what kind of work is it to take care of others? Mm. Some of it's emotional labor. Some of it is seen um, as work that women had previously just were expected to do in the home, right? Cleaning or caring for children or caring for others. And of course, as the economy has modernized, some of that has changed as we've seen more and more women entering into the workforce. But then that also means, to your point, that there, are, there is a greater need uh, for the domestic workforce. So those two things, I think, structural ex exclusions from the law and um, this notion that this isn't real work. This is women's work. Um, this is um, something that is different than going to an office or working in a factory. Well, they didn't have to go to college for it. They're just vacuuming my house or cleaning my shower. It's unskilled. Yeah, well, there is the, a lot of perceptions about things like that, but I don't know if you've ever tried yeah. uh, to, to clean a bathroom or do something that a professional domestic worker does. It probably will take you 10 times longer and won't be as clean, mm. is my guess. Right. I mean, the trick is, it's interesting. In our family, we could really use a domestic worker, I think, because we feels almost as if it's inherently exploitative. But it's not, right? It doesn't need to be. No, not at all. I mean, in some ways, we're seeking to professionalize, right, the domestic workforce and that um, this work should be respected like all other work. It should have the same kinds of protections. And part of the work that I lead at the Alliance um, as social innovations director is to think about... Um, new and exciting ways for social movements to, in some ways, leapfrog the basic rights that you should get under the law and start thinking about how can we use the market to create fair standards? How can we leapfrog the basic and how do we get to what's fair? And how do we, how do we create the right conditions and ecosystem for that to emerge? I mean, it starts out with dignity, right? I mean, it, not to get too spiritual about it. I mean, does, this, does it start with dignity on that side or does it start with just, you know... Uh, law with just numbers? Well, I mean, it's start, I mean, just the history of the work and our movement um, in this iteration. And I will say, you know, for your listeners that the domestic work movement is something that's not new to this generation. I mean, it's happened several generations in the past and they were really exciting and vibrant washerwomen strikes in mm -hmm. the South. And, you know, there's a history to domestic workers um, seeking and fighting for their own visibility and their rights. This movement that NDWA and our affiliates around the country leads is the current iteration of what has been a generation's long struggle to dignify, to bring dignity and visibility to this work. Um, so I think when we, you know, the when the alliance got started, 
now over a decade ago, the first set of things that we really did was to change the law. I mean, we went around in, and it took us seven years in New York, seven years of busing domestic workers to Albany and women taking off from work and not getting paid for that time off, right? But going to Albany to talk to legislators to convince them to say, our work is real work and we deserve um, to be protected by the law. That led, after seven years of organizing, to a, one of the biggest breakthroughs in our movement, which was the, the passage of the New York Domestic Worker Bill of Rights. And it is, you know, on its face, a very basic set of laws. It's just saying, end all the exclusions and include us in everything else that everybody else gets. But it opened up a whole new path to organizing it um, in the law, made it so that this is respected a profession just like anything else. Um, and then since then, we've been able to pass domestic worker bills of rights in many other states. But it also means now that this, you get a 1099, right? It's a, you, it gets elevated from the sort of the, the black market of labor to legal employment. It can. It can mean that, although in some places the laws are agnostic uh, to that. And it depends also on the, as is in any other industry, depends on the nature and manner of the work. But for example, nannies for the most part are not 1099s, they are W-2s, because you control what how you want them to interact with your child. You They're going to be in your home. And so the law is actually pretty clear mm. um, on, for example, the nannying part of the sector that they are in fact employees. But not to go down a whole rabbit hole. Some of it is off the books, and I think that is changing, although I think in this, a lot of that has to do, one, I think with the culture around the work, mm-hmm. Um, the second, I think, has to do with um, the climate around immigration right now mm. and that a large portion of this workforce are immigrants. And um, some of those uh, immigrants may not have work authorization in this country. And so um, given the current political climate that we're in, um, I don't expect there to be more folks coming out of the shadows. In fact, I think what we will see is people wanting to remain in the shadows, um, which, you know, I think creates a whole cycle of exploitation um, and a lack of power at work. Right. I mean, and, and you would think, one would think that, you know, joining, a becoming a, a worker for a company would then somehow help, you know, that you join a uh, an agency or something that then sends you out. But, you know, we certainly know in, in terms of the, the companies like, you know, Apple or Chase Bank that use, that now no longer hire their own cleaning people, but bring in services. You know, the services are using many times uh, very exploitative practices on their labor. You know, so what's the way that I guess that a domestic worker now achieves some autonomy? So they join NDWA, and I was looking. We've got you've got twenty thousand nannies, housekeepers, and caregivers in thirty six cities and seventeen states, at least as of the time of, of finding this. Mm-hmm. You know, sixty affiliate organizations. So there's a growing. Network. I mean, twenty thousand. Well, it can sound like a lot or a little, depending, but it's 20,000 people, I mean, and growing. We're actually up to 70,000, and we have over 60 affiliates now around the country. I think really what we're talking about is the conditions of work that domestic workers are facing in, in some ways is the canary in the coal mine for what a lot of the rest of us are facing in the economy. And so the challenges that you're talking about for people who are working in corporations or in subcontracting environments, issues that the labor movement has long fought about and raised a, attention toward, I think um, it's really interesting. So with domestic workers, there really is not a history of firms and companies in this space, right? So we're talking about residential cleaning, for example, or nannying. And while there are, of course, merry maids or molly yeah, maids or, you know, certain kinds things, of yeah. franchises like that, the vast majority of domestic workers, at least in cleaning and childcare, are working just on their own independently for a family. They're not being dispatched through, you know, a company or... Now, this is different in the home care sector, uh, mostly because the government ends up becoming a payer um, for some of the services, right? And so there is a more... That's like the part of domestic work, I think, that's the most formalized at this point. 
But in general, what's really interesting and part of what my role is as innovations director for the Alliance is to stay on top of the trends that are really shifting the industry. And one of them, one, a key trend um, that's really shaping the future of domestic work, and I would argue the future of work in this country, is the fact that Silicon Valley and technology companies have now discovered the pre previously invisible and underground markets of domestic work. What was you know, just word of mouth, cash, you know, uh, informal, uh, in the shadows markets are now ripe for, quote, disruption. And on its face, this could either be a really positive development um, or a really negative one. And I think for most of this right now, it remains to be seen what's going to happen. I can point to good examples and I can point to bad examples, but I think 80 to 90 percent of it is still TBD. You know, let's right. see what's going to happen. Right. It could become like like, you know, a hellish Uber of, you know, uh, uh, exploitation or it could level up to some perhaps as yet on, well, you know, what would be a fair mondo, say, or uh, some in spiral uh, version of, uh, you know, worker alliance and a platform, yeah, exactly. uh, co-owned platform for uh, uh, domestic workers. Exactly. I mean, on the one hand, if you think about the challenges of organizing domestic workers, right, it's that we don't know where domestic workers are. We don't know which homes are workplaces. And so it's kind of hard to figure out how to, pre-internet, right? It's really hard to figure out how to organize these folks. Right. I mean, one of our best strategies, say, you know, 15 years ago, was really to just go to parks and find people who were there with their charges and organize and talk to them. And they're afraid, though, because some of them are, are not documented or... Who knows what? You know, they're going to look at authorities. And they're also they're, at work, right? Yeah. So uh, they have responsibilities right. because they're working at the same time. And so what's really interesting about the entrance of the technology players um, into the care and cleaning markets is that there is a level of aggregation that is um, happening that is unprecedented in this sector. Mm. So if you think about, for example, a company like Urban Sitter or Care.com, and you think about the demand and supply sides of the market all of a sudden being digitized and aggregated. And you think about the fact that there's maybe tens of thousands of profiles on both sides of the market. Well, you know, that's a real opportunity, I think, to lift up standards. I mean, it could also be a real opportunity yeah. to degrade standards, right? To right? optimize for God knows what. <laughs> Efficiency yeah. instead of equity, right? But I think... I think that's really where there's a lot of excitement, and that's my role. My role is to steward and lead our movement um, in the midst of all of these changes. An example of that for, you know, thinking about, you know, what you just said about, you know, is there some kind of worker-centric or some kind of campaign or something that you could run to, to harness the power of all this mm -hmm. aggregation. Several years ago, we partnered with um, Care.com which is arguably the largest online care marketplace um, in the world. And I think they have, you know, probably over the course of the last seven or eight years, 20 million users or something like that. Mm. And we partnered with them to launch a campaign to educate the employers on their site about what it means to be a fair employer. And we created something called the Fair Care Pledge, where we articulated and packaged in the kind of, you know, a stop, drop, and roll of being fair. And you know, it was fair pay, paid time off, and clear expectations that come in the form of a contract. That these three things were the pillar of being a good employer. And we partnered with Care.com to kind of move that trinity of ideas throughout their entire marketplace by doing PR together, doing ads, doing um, email and other kinds of marketing to, to those users. And the idea, I mean, it was an experiment, right? Mm -hmm. So I run Fair Care Labs and it was an experiment for us to think about how do we react to the way that the market is changing and begin to assert ideas around what is fair. If you mm -hmm. think about domestic work markets, it's so disaggregated, right? It's just... Oftentimes, we call it the Wild West, where, you know, as I said before, you could have a really wonderfully fair, harmonious relationship, and then the next person could be making like $6 an hour, right? right. And so what we are seeking to do, at least through that experiment, was to harness the power of that aggregation, which is being facilitated by technology, and insert 
essentially what we think should become normalized, what we think should be the components of being fair. Now, an obvious critique or question that comes next is, well, how do you enforce that? How sure. is it that you ensure that those ideas are becoming uh, operationalized in the employment relationship? And the, the, the truthful answer to that is, um, we don't know yet. I mean, that's part of my job is to figure figure that out. That's right. part of what the labs is I trying mean, to crack. You would think it would be as easy as, you know, employer ratings that, you know, the employees rate where they just were. But I mean, on Amazon Turks, you can't do that. You know, the, the employers are invisible and only the, the workers get ratings. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, that speaks to a larger issue as the platform economy uh, emerges and we see the kind the kinds of ways in which technology is being used to facilitate labor markets. And a big concern that I have is that at least the commercial platforms, right, that are mostly funded by venture capital, are seeking to address and solve the, the, the demand side of the equation. They're very much catering to the demand side, the customers um, and the investors, with basically very little attention, if any at all, being paid to the worker side. Same as, as Uber. You drive in an Uber and you it, it's cruel, but if you at, during your ride, if you help the driver calculate what they actually make per hour, they're horrified when, you know, if they haven't considered that, oh my gosh, I'm making $4.10 an hour for this. Right. But it speaks to a larger issue that we have in the economy right now, right, which is people are working harder and longer than ever before, and they're simply not able to make it in the economy. And that speaks to much larger structural challenges that we face as a country um, and an economy that, you know, in some ways, that's what the future of work conversation right. in this country is about. I mean, and some of it, I mean, it makes me a little cynical, but I feel like, okay, now that middle class white people see the gig economy and are subjected to it, now all of a sudden they can look down at the people that they've been uh, uh, interacting with all these years and go, oh, I get it. You know, it's sort of like, like first they came for the domestic workers, and I said nothing because I'm not a domestic worker. You know, now they came for the stockbrokers, and they got algorithms replacing me, and now all of a sudden I'm all up in arms about ex labor exploitation. I will say that one of the things that's really resonated as I've really participated in the future of work conversations around this country over the last several years, as, you know, the kind of temperature around all these issues has risen is when I say that domestic workers are some of our country's original gig workers, I think people really sit up and say, wait a minute, you know what, you're right. And that the conditions that domestic workers have been working in for generations, no contracts, no benefits, no health care, no stability, uh, forget about retirement options, right? You're not, you're off the grid, you're not in any kind of formal system. Even when you go to work, no one knows that you're there. It's a he said, she said type of thing when it comes to sexual harassment and abuse, which is prevalent in our industry, obviously, since we work in the intimacy of other people's homes. And so all of that is increasingly becoming more and more people's reality. And the question for us, I think, you know, and why I think the future of domestic work is so integral to the future of work conversation is that, in many ways, if you think about which jobs are going to be here to stay, domestic work is going to be here. And in fact, if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics and you look at what's the fastest growing occupation in the country... It is childcare and home care jobs right. combined. Home, home health care. That's there's, right. There's aging population. They don't have their their millennial kids are not going to sit there take care of them through the last five ten years of their life. Ten thousand people are turning sixty five a day, and the overwhelming preference of the baby boomer, boomer generation is that they want to age in place. They do not want to be institutionalized. Of course, medical advances mean that people are living longer than ever before. And um, people don't live close to their families as much as we used right. to, right? And so who is actually going to care for us as we get older? And the, the deep irony in all of this is that right now we don't have an economy that allows um, for the people who care for others to also care for their own, right? The average, uh, you know, annual income for a home care worker is $13,000 a year can't raise a family on $13,000 a year. And so the question for us 
if these jobs are the jobs of the future, right? Care jobs can't be automated. They can't be outsourced. You can't have somebody in China taking care of your grandma. And, you know, I was just at a future of work roundtable the other day where a professor from the UC system said to me, we have a lab at our university that's been working for 12 years to get a robot to fold a towel. And... <laughs> So, I mean, I think we'll yeah. get there in terms of the kinds of technology. I mean, we know technology is accelerating everything so rapidly. Yeah. But in the near future... Good luck getting the robot <laughs> into the shower stall where the grout is all, you know, to, to scratch that out with a brush or something, you know. So if these jobs are here to stay, mm -hmm. then the question is, how are we transforming these jobs into good jobs, right? Because the dominant approach, and I would say, you know, I have a... A real bone to pick, I guess, with this approach is the best way to say it, is the strategy around low-income jobs in this country has been to get people out of those jobs and get them into good jobs. Right. Um, and I just don't see how that works, at least in the case of domestic work and, and care. Right. No, I'm in the CUNY system, the City University of New York system. The, the, the success story is, oh, look at this girl was working as a domestic laborer. Now she got her college degree and she's an assistant manager at blah, blah. In a job that's going to be obsolete in two years, probably. As well, opposed yeah. to the one she had, which is still going to be needed. I mean, but the other downside or the, the uh, another treacherous slope is, let's say domestic work becomes honored and paid and appropriate, then the middle class is going to go for those jobs. And <laughs> do you know what I mean? If those, if, those, if those jobs, if we understand home health care as this privilege and we start paying people the $35, $40 an hour that they should get for it, then who's going to be doing those jobs? And what happens to the, to the entire class of people who's been doing them till now? Well, I mean, these are really deep questions that we're facing as a society. I don't think we know all the answers to this, right? I mean, part of part of why I think there is such traction in this conversation around the future of work, whatever critiques people may have of it, you know, some folks think that the technology community has really taken over this conversation with proposals around universal basic income or portable benefits. But the larger point, honestly, is that if technology is changing the way that we work, and we can all agree that it is, how and which jobs are here and which jobs will disappear, there's still a lot of data gaps and there's still, you know, no one can predict the future, right? I mean, even 20 years ago, we had no idea that the iPhone would emerge, right? So I think given all of that uncertainty, the question I think for us is figuring out what is the new design that we need for people to economically live in a rapidly changing society. What does that actually look like? Is it an iteration of what we have now and making a social safety net 2.0 or 3.0? Or is it you know, blowing things up and coming up with a completely different approach um, to the way that humans thrive and make their way on this planet? I mean, that's what part of what, what concerns me about the, the kind of the technology focus of the labs is that these technologies have so many artifacts of the worst kind of capitalism and venture capital in them that not to dispense with them altogether, but we know the problem was here before these technologies. People have been abused, I mean, for centuries, but domestic workers in particular, because it's hidden and, un and, and unappreciated or not considered real. Then we have technology, which is tending to do it to everybody. I'm wondering if the way out is through more technology or you know programming it better to highlight the right things or to go all the way back and say well how do we start to treat other human beings with dignity you know and do these do technologies are they biased towards uh, uh, kind of highlighting the the our inhumanity rather than our our restoration of basic uh, <laughs> of basic human relationship yeah, I mean, I think that's a really deep observation about technology. But I, I think technology is just a tool. And while it is true that the, the kind of dominant models that we have in some ways enshrine the existing imbalance of power or various forms of exploitation in them, right? So if you think about you know, companies that are in the uh, seeking to be the Uber of house cleaning, for example, 
in some ways are just taking the inequity that exists offline and moving it online and slapping some kind of innovation label on it, right? And I think that and they're not necessarily making it worse. It's kind of like lazy reifying. entrepreneurship. I think it's extremely lazy entrepreneurship. Right. I don't think <laughs> there. At least cab drivers owned their businesses before Uber. There was a working economy. You know, with domestic workers, it's you know the vast majority are already exploited gig workers. Right, and then inserting yourself as a third-party mediated platform where you're, you know, uh, creating less value than you're charging, I think is you know a kind of a poor excuse for a business model. But I but more importantly, if you think about the there is a reality to the economies of scale and the ability to aggregate people and communicate with lots of people and not just if we think beyond just the kind of dispatching technology in an Uber kind of way, but we think about the fact that mobile use is up, the fact that people are on social media, that people are connected in that way like I think that Fair Care Labs, what we're trying to do is not mimic Silicon Valley, which I actually pretty, I have a high level of distaste for. I don't even think it will solve the problems that we're trying to solve. Right. But instead, um, hack hack how we use technology to be in service of, of our workforce. Let me give you a really good example of that. If you remember, this conversation around portable benefits really took off around the country, right? And for those who don't know that conversation, it was really just about how can we have benefits travel with the job as more and more people are cobbling work together, right? So you don't work for one employer. You're not in one place for 50 years where you have a retirement and pension, but that you move around in the economy. And increasingly, more people are, are doing what you, you said in the break that you know you were doing, which is you know uh, working as contractors or freelancers. So the idea, which is a really good one, which we support at the Domestic Workers Alliance, is to say, well, we should figure out a system where if you have multiple employers, they can contribute in a prorated fashion into some kind of benefits fund to mimic and replicate the kinds of things that we got when we worked for one employer. Mm -hmm. Well, domestic workers have never had access to benefits, ever, <laughs> right? Um, and if you think about house cleaners, they're the classic case of where a portable benefits model might apply. You may have five to ten clients or customers or homes that you clean every week or every two weeks, and there, are, you know, um, if you could devise such a system where each one of those could pay a small micro amount into a benefits fund, for example, then that would be available for a domestic worker to uh, have paid sick days or insurance right. or any kind and of that products. That exists for um, you know a SAG. I'm, I'm a member of SAG, Screen Actors Guild, and you do a day on this movie and a day on that movie, and you get they put in a tiny amount into your House insurance fund, your retirement fund. Well, we have built in Fair Care Labs the first portable benefits platform for for our workforce. Mm. Um, and I think what people are saying is the kind of first real portable benefits platform right. for independent workers in the country. So it's called Aaliyah, and it's live in beta here in New York and uh -huh. across the country. And basically what we're learning is that most employers of house cleaners want to do the right thing. It's just really complicated and hard to figure out how. Right. And so part of the problem that Aaliyah is solving, and you know, this is where Google came into Fair Care Labs and invested in, in really scaling up and building um, Aaliyah. And we can have our own conversation yeah. about what, what we think about that, but we're grateful um, for them seeing that what we need is a new system of figuring out how all of this works, and technology is going to definitely be a key part of that. Will all of our problems around humanity and dignity be solved by technology? Absolutely no. not. But creating this kind of a portable benefits platform, the first of its kind, to be able to facilitate those micro contributions and allow for domestic workers for the first time in their life to have a paid sick day and not worry about their, you know, choosing between their health and and uh, and going to work is a really big breakthrough for our workforce. So I think that there are ways in which portable benefits, I mean, I'm sorry, that technology can actually further um, equity goals, but it won't look like the things that we're seeing come out um, from venture capital right. right now. Now, when you say Google invested, I mean, you're a nonprofit, right? So when they invest, they're not investing in a nonprofit so much, or are, is it an investment? I use the term investment yeah. as supporting, right? right? Really contributing, being a partner um, and being a part of the entire project to figure out how we're actually going to redesign. Right. But it's not like VC and they expect a 100x return from you. No, no. not at all. <laughs> not at not all. It's not going to happen. I mean, and if it did, you'd want to return it to... Uh, the workers. The workers, Of right? course. Uh, that would be the whole point. <laughs> I mean, it was great. You're, you're, oh, you spoke at the 2015 Personal Democracy Forum and you opened 
by using an example of Maria, a domestic worker. And and we're going to play a little bit of it. I want to tell you a story about someone working with a tech startup. Her name is Maria. Maria started a few months ago as a freelancer at an Uber-inspired company. She has access to more clients than she's ever had before, and she's able to leverage the company's technology and tools. However, the gigs are inconsistent, and the pay is lower than what she made when she booked the work on her own. After the first couple of months, she began to worry. The hours and pay became unpredictable. Sometimes Maria would complete a project, she'd log into her portal, and inexplicably, her rate had dropped. Maria is working for one of Silicon Valley's hottest tech startups, but she's not a coder or a graphic designer. She's a domestic worker who cleans houses, and she does so through a new on-demand cleaning app. Maria isn't paid hundreds of dollars an hour or even $50 an hour, but barely $15 an hour. That is when she's paid at all. Where you land is that none of, the, uh, none of what's befalling Maria is inevitable. It's not. I mean, what we have today is a product of the choices that we collectively make together. None of this is inevitable, but I don't think it's going to be reversed without a very serious conscious effort from all of us who actually care about the future of work, the future of care in this country, and the fact that, you know, all people um, on this planet and in this country deserve to be able to live with dignity in the economy. That if we're united in that, I think, and I think that's a pretty tall statement these days, you know, <laughs> given, given the kind of um, challenges we face in this country around political division, around economic inequality, um, we've got a lot of work to do. But one of the things that I've realized over the years is there is this feeling that technological change is something that is happening to us and that we are, we almost have no control over it, right? And I would really push back against that. I think it's up to us to decide how we want to use technology. It's up to us to decide, at least at this point, what the algorithms are solving for. It's up to us to decide whether we want to introduce the variable of equity in terms of what we're actually, you know, what problems we're actually solving for versus just efficiency, which is what the economy is really built around right now. Right. I mean, that's the trick with technology. Most of us who see, oh, look what Uber's done. Oh, look what Facebook is doing. The initial reaction, is, if we're privileged enough, is to go, well, screw it. I'm not going to use any of this stuff. And it's like, well, that's not really possible for everybody. At least yes. Not. <laughs> I think, you know, I think that's a really um, astute thing that you're saying, right? Because for domestic workers, they don't have a choice to exit from this part of the economy. They can't just walk away from large technological forces that are shaping the future of our industry. And so, you know, a lot of people have said to me, well, why are you working with Silicon Valley? And, you know, several years ago, I released a framework in partnership with companies in Silicon Valley called the Good Work Code. And the idea was to, to put a North Star out there that says, the, this, you know, this is what the economy, as it shifts online, this is what good work could look like. And these are the eight principles, and it's safety, stability, and flexibility. It's the kinds of things that are common sense around what we would think make up good work, but and it we articulated it. We'll post it at teamhuman.fm. Yeah, but yeah. The, main, the main point here is that in some ways we actually have to assert the kind of world that we want and then start to, to build for that. Right. And so people have said to me, well, Palak, why did you work with Silicon Valley? Why, you know, why not just kind of go off and have Fair Care Labs just do what you're doing with Ali and just keep building platforms? Mm -hmm. And I would say, well, I don't have that luxury because domestic workers every single day, more of them are working in the online economy. And I have a responsibility, our movement has a responsibility to improve the lives of domestic workers wherever they are. And if that's not in a setting that we think is up to our, you know, uh, standards, well, that's all the more reason to get out there and actually um, work to improve conditions. Now, 
Truth be told, I think it's going to take a variety of strategies, and that's what we're doing in Fair Care Labs. And so part of that will be, you know, partnering with Silicon Valley in the way that we did with Care.com on the Fair Care Pledge or Airbnb, where we worked with them on educating hosts on how to hire a cleaner, the fairway. Um, and then some of it will be doing what we're doing, building Aaliyah and building our own products in-house um, that harness the power of technology in service of the workers. And I feel like there's also... It's a big conversation, but I, we may have to face the sort of the 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 primal historical uh, uh, energies behind domestic work. You know, I've been reading a book lately called the uh, the domestication of humans, which is looking at the you know, I mean, a lot of people kind of blame agriculture for capitalism and all this bad stuff, but. Um, uh, archaeologists are sort of more accurately blaming domestication. That when we move from hunter-gatherers or using lean-tos and migrating from different places, once we established homes with walls and a door, um, that's when domestic abuse began. That's when the man was out in the public and he had the wife and children and Lord only knows what was happening in that house. You know, that that's the, the beginning of the patriarchy. The beginning of dominating of women was because now you had them stationary in this place where other people couldn't see what you were doing to your one woman. And when I think about the exploitation of domestic workers who are mostly women, it's almost like a weird continuation of that, only now... You know, white women are privileged women. Now they're out in the workforce, but now there's this other woman in the home being treated. There's a sense of shame associated with domestic work, even with people that might want to treat their domestic worker appropriately. And it's because it's almost as if the the the, the primal element of this is not being engaged with. It's not. In other words, the, the sort of the intrinsic inequality that's going on here. You have to accept that, okay, this person is an immigrant, this person is poorer than me, this person doesn't have savings, this person doesn't have capital. I do have capital. I own this home. I have, you know, in other words, the, the imbalance is so arbitrary and so unjust on the grand scale that it's almost, I, I feel almost as if we have to uh, acknowledge some of the, the faults of domesticity itself in order to really engage honestly with domestic work. I mean, do, do, do these sorts of issues, these sort of these, these, these sort of the larger waves of, of what is going on here, um, do those enter into the equation for you? Of course, I mean, domestic work is a place where lots of different fault lines in our society right. intersect, right? So, the most obvious are some that you've named, right, which are around race and immigration, just given the structural history of the workforce in this country and its relationship both uh, to slavery and racism. But then there are more subtle, you know, ways in which um, this, what's happening in domestic work can pry open a lot of fault lines in our country. And one of them is just around this idea of emotional labor that, you know, there there is domestic work in some ways has this other part to the work around caring and loving, which is a form of work and mm -hmm. labor, but it's also not. And then it is wrapped up with a bunch of emotions that we all have in seeing our family's age or in feeling guilty that you're not spending as much time as you would like with your child and all and of that. And then you project that guilt onto the person that you've hired to do you it. You can, or you can appreciate or, them. I yeah, think you can see go it, it, can go, right. it can go in either way. But I think really the larger point is that there's a lot that's wrapped up in mm. performing acts of care and love. And that it gets at the very essence of who we are as humans, right? That... I mean, what more is there in this life if we are not loving and caring for each other, if we're not with our families? What is this all for, right? And so, I mean, it can get very deep and philosophical very quickly. And I think part of, part of the fascination and just the way that 
both the comfort and discomfort that comes with domestic work, what you're talking mm -hmm. and what you're naming about, comes because it's wrapped up in, in some of the most uh, fundamental things that make us human. That's the kind of beauty, I think, of, of the domestic workforce and, and really investing in this workforce as not just a, a part of the transactional economy, but this is actually what we need to live our full lives, right? This is what we need to be able to um, live with a kind of freeness and openness with, with one another. Um, and part of that will never happen if the people who are performing that essential act of caring and love are not treated with care and love. Right. I mean, and part of it has to do with where, where are they in our class system? You know, so if you're, you're the woman and you're, you decide, okay, now I'm going to go out and work. You're going to only go out and work if you're going to earn more at the work you do than you have to pay the person who's taking care of your kid. Because in a capitalist society, it's as if it only makes sense to do that that way. What if you made the same? What if you made the same and you do this job because there's meaning in it for you and you're going to do it after your kid's gone and you break even because you're paying someone else what it costs to raise your child while you're not in the house. In other words, that almost doesn't make sense to us. The same way, you know, you go to Europe or a civilized country and people often don't tip the waiters because the waiters make a salary because the waiters are doing it as a career. You're not looking at it as uh, it's not so hierarchical or classist or, you know, in other words, it's, if your domestic worker is not at the bottom of the totem pole, but is one, is profession, it's a professional, which they are, you know, but to treat it as an equal professional, then it really screws with the American understanding of, of class and hierarchy and, and career development. I mean, I think that a lot of people who interact with the domestic workforce have actually a great appreciation um, and a sense of value for what they are providing um, in their home or, or for their families. And I think that, you know, barring the extreme ends, you know, I think most people do have a sense of appreciation. The challenge, I think, is that the economy is structured in such a way, that our system is structured in such a way that sometimes it literally is a math problem in terms of being able to to pay those, the pay what what this work is worth. If you are not making fifteen dollars an hour, right? But everybody in this economy, most everybody needs care. Right. It's not just the elites in you know Wall Street or something that need care, but all of us need care. All of us are going to age and need care. Those of us who have children, it's not just Wall Street, you know, folks that are having children. People all over the economy top and bottom are having children. And so the challenge is that if, as we have greater income inequality in this country, it literally becomes a problem of math. If you're not making $15 an hour, you can't pay somebody $15 an hour, right? And so we're kind of in this boat together. And we have got to figure out how we are going to not just value the work because those workers deserve it, but all of us is kind of wrapped up in creating a system around care. You know, we have this uh, big idea um, in the National Domestic Workers Alliance uh, where we have begun to start thinking about care as infrastructure. The way that we have roads and bridges in the economy, the way that we make large capital investments and things that allow for the economy to function, for businesses to be able to be successful at what they do, in the same way, we should think about care as infrastructure for the economy. And that may require a large public investment in rectifying both the historical wrongs, but actually coming up with practical solutions that allow for all of us to move through the economy in a way that, that takes care of each one of us. I like that. It's, it's almost it's atmospheric or environmental. You know, it's the way to approach it as a structural problem is to consider it the very structure, the very scaffolding that, of everything else. That's right. And the part of the cultural challenge, right? I mean, part of, you know, we talked about this earlier in the conversation around the gendered notions of work. But the other thing that's really particular, I think, to American culture is that you kind of think this is relegated to the realm of the private, that this isn't a public 
conversation or a collective conversation, but that, you know, this is something that you're just struggling with by yourself in your own home or with your own family. And the truth is that everybody across the economy is struggling with the same issues, right? If you think about especially the demographic emergence of the sandwich generation where people have parents that they're caring for and at the same time they have children that they're caring for. And I know that I'm in this situation. I'm increasingly worried about that for, for my own family, that we have, you know, these are big, big challenges. But as I said before, because of the growth for demand of care, because of the demographic changes that were happening, that are happening, and the fact that these jobs are here to stay in our mind kind of makes it ripe um, for very strategic investment. But we have to decide to make that choice. And I mean, finally, I'm wondering, uh, what what's your personal journey? How did you get here? I mean, you you went to high school somewhere, <laughs> and and you had a normal upbringing. I had extremely <laughs> normal upbringing. <laughs> I went to high school in Miami, Florida, and um, I had a normal upbringing. Well, you know, I was a child of immigrants in this country, and um, I think where did they come from? My parents came to this country from India about 40, 45 years ago now. On like a boat or like a plane? <laughs> they came on a plane, Doug. Yeah. So they um, were just, in mind, you know, my grandparents came on boats. That was back yeah. the way we got here. No, they came on a plane. But, you know, I think it was a, a very kind of classic immigrant story where my dad came to the country with $7 in his pocket and just hustled to find a way to make it work. And didn't know the language, didn't know the mm. system. Of course, I just can't imagine this pre-internet, you know. Yeah. So uh, you can't Google anything. <laughs> um, and yeah, he came, they came to this country. And, you know, when we grew up, um, I was just uh, talking to folks at MIT and Theory U and the Presencing Institute about this. We, I grew up in kind of an immigrant enclave. But one of the things that was really interesting is I was born into a very small minority religion in India called Jainism. And the premise of that religion is nonviolence, mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, basically you just seek to avoid all kinds of violence, and not just physical, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so when we came to this country, we, my parents had a real hard time because we were already such a small group in India of finding other people in that community. And so we kind of linked up with other, you know, folks from India and kind of became this like hybrid Hindu religion. But long story short, the idea here that I'm, I'm, I'm sharing is that the only thing that was kind of not normal about my upbringing was like how deeply involved I was in like the Hindu philosophical spiritual tradition. Uh -huh. And my parents were extremely anti-ritualistic. So they didn't believe in... Um, any kind of rituals, but instead really were focused on what's the deep philosophy um, that is kind of pervasive in Hindu and, and Jain scriptures, which is also related to Buddhist um, scriptures. And basically it all boils down to one thing, which is we're all one. Mm. And that the separation that we think is real between me and you and others around the world is actually something that is false and and um, it's, a, it's just not true that we um, are, are separate than each other. And I think that, that that kind of deep philosophical exposure early in life then really caught up with me when I started to see contradictions in the world, when I started to understand about things that were not my lived experience. I, you know, had experienced racism, but I hadn't experienced police brutality. Um, and so when... When I began to learn more about the experiences of others, I was really moved by that gap and that contradiction and just felt that it was unacceptable for me to accept that the contradiction existed. Now, of course, we have a lot of contradictions to close, um, but that I think that's kind of really, I think, what got me, got me onto the path that I'm on. Now, of course, I didn't know you could get a job doing these things. And I <laughs> went to go work in management consulting like many others in my generation and worked in the private sector. I've worked in government. But I think all of those different experiences have basically led me to this point, which is really a bridge bu building role at the Domestic Workers Alliance, where I'm bridging to business, bridging to technology, bridging to a lot of different worlds, um, all with the purpose of figuring out how we're going to um, humanize the economy. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. And thank you for being a true member, a working member of Team Human. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the basement media squad at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism next week with more of humanity's strange and wonderful efforts at evolution. We are entirely worker and listener supported. You can join the team by subscribing at Patreon. You can also help the show by reviewing Team Human on iTunes. We put a link in the episode description in your podcast player. We're also broadcasting on a few college and community stations. If you want us on yours, please email stephen at teamhuman.fm. That's stephen with a ph at teamhuman.fm. This show is, after all, produced and engineered by Stephen Bartolome. This is Team Human, our last best hope for peace. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.